This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, and it's a pleasure to welcome Dan Weaver to the program. How are you doing, Dan? Fine, Bob. Thank you for having me on. Always good to talk to you. Dan Weaver is uh, well-known in the Amsterdam area. He's the owner of the Bookhound Bookstore on East Main Street, which somewhere along the way they changed back to Main Street, but most people still call it East Main Street. Sounds like I'm doing a folk song by Arlo Guthrie. But uh, Dan, in in recent uh, months, or uh, I think it's just been months, has been writing his own history columns for the local paper in Amsterdam, the Amsterdam Recorder. It's a column that appears uh, every other week called Hindsight. And he comes up with some very uh, interesting uh, topics in, uh, in the Amsterdam area. Let me start with Debbie Reynolds. What did you find out about Debbie Reynolds having a connection to Amsterdam? Well, I found out that her second husband, uh, Harry Carl, had a his East Coast distribution center for Carl's shoes was located in Amsterdam. He opened it in Amsterdam in 1963, I believe it was, uh, during the time he was married to Debbie Reynolds. And uh, I, I didn't have any proof at the time that she had been to Amsterdam, but since that time I've had two people tell me, yes, she did come to Amsterdam, and she was there on, at, at the old Mahaskill plant where uh, Carl Shoes had his East Coast Distribution Center, and she did visit it and visited Tuman's Restaurant and Grill across the street as well. Well, that's what I heard. I don't know if you told me this story, but somebody told me that Debbie Reynolds walks into Tumans, which still exists, right? And yes. uh, she walks into Tumans, which is a well-known uh, hangout for the uh, Mohasco workers uh, through the years, and she ordered some sort of mixed drink, and they couldn't p- fulfill it, and she ended up having a shot and a beer. I don't know if that's right. really true or not. Yeah, that's what I was told as well. So... But she used to come to upstate New York all the time and visit various locations where, uh, see, they had their own stores in the West, but I believe what they did here in the East, rather than open up their own Carl's shoe stores, was they would run the shoe departments at various bargain center stores, like Family Bargain Center, which there was one in Amsterdam, one in Johnstown. And then there was another bargain center chain called, I think it was Easy Bargain Center, and they would set up. Uh, the shoe departments in those stores, and every time one of those stores would open, often, I shouldn't say every time, but often she would come or she and her husband would come to open the store. Mm-hmm. Now, the company, the company's no longer in Amsterdam, right? The shoe company, or maybe the shoe company's no longer a shoe company. I don't know. It, went, it closed down in 1987, went out of business a few years after Harry Carl died, so oh. it's gone. So Debbie... Reynolds uh, graced uh, the city of Amsterdam maybe more than once. Right. Another tale that you told um, that I I found especially uh, moving, I don't have it here in front of me, but uh, since I'm sort of in the same kind of uh, business, I thought, gee, it's too bad I never did that. But it's it's Dan's story now about a real character that I remember well who worked at the post office named Derby, and he was frequently called Blind Derby. Uh, And you worked at the post office at one time, Dan. Is that how you knew of Derby? No. um, I knew of him simply because the first time I visited here in 1977, I was here for the summer, I went into the post office for, forget what reason, um, before email, so maybe I was mailing a letter to my parents. And Derby was still there. 
Now, when I came back in 1978, he was gone. So I saw him a couple times in the summer of 77, and then he was gone. And I've always wondered what happened to him. And, and I wanted to know more about his life. But I would talk to people in Amsterdam, and nobody seemed to be able to tell me. So I did a lot of digging in old newspapers, but then I also was able to get in contact with a niece of his and, and get more information about him. Well, I was, I was in, I'm in your position that you were before you found the niece. Uh, who was Derby? I mean, what was his name? His name was William Zalik, and he was blind, and he had a little shop, uh, I guess you would call it, there at the post office where he sold um, candy and cigarettes and newspapers and all kinds of things like that. Actually, he was at City Hall before he was in the post office. He moved down to the post office because he felt there would be more traffic there. And uh, he was set up through a program run by the state to help uh, blind people become more independent. And they set up these newsies around the state in various locations. And he was one of the first, and he was set up in the Amsterdam. They, the, the state paid for their them to get set up, and then they ran it as a business, like a business mm-hmm. after that. And you say his name was Zawick? Can you just give me a spelling yeah. of that? W-S-Z-O-L-E-K. Now, sometimes uh, people spell it, they leave the Z out. W-S-Z-O-L-E-K. And there are, according to what I found online, there are less than 300 people in the United States with that last name. Um, but I knew one. I knew a lady by that name. And it seemed to me we always pronounced it Showick, you know, which doesn't even make sense when you see all those letters together. But. Right. Well, I, I, I actually, my wife and I have a friend with that last name, and she always pronounced it Zalik. So Zalik? I, I don't know. Okay. I'm sure the original pronunciation is different than what's uh, used here in America. But anyway, he got around town real well. Uh, you know, he always had a guide dog and he used to like to go down to uh, Cousins Park and places like that after work. He he lived up on, uh, uh, what street was it? It was up on uh, uh, Cork Hill. Uh, mm. Well, I forget the name of the street, but he lived there almost all his life and he would walk down every morning early to the post office walk home at night. Hmm. Do you know how he got his uh, nickname that he was called Derby? Yeah. According to his niece, he when he went to um, get his first guide dog, he came home with a Derby hat. And uh, that's where he got his nickname from. Hmm. Well, I remember him being a real fixture at the post office and uh, you'd, chat with him when you bought stuff from him again newspapers cigarettes candy that sort of thing um the other thing that comes to my mind is every so often you'd hear a story that that somebody had shortchanged him or something like that and that was always seen as a big no-no in amsterdam right it happened a couple times Uh, there were two different times where somebody passed off an english penny and passed it off as a half dollar of course english penny is a very large coin unlike our penny. And so that happened to him twice. And then another occasion after he'd left for the day, somebody robbed his stand of all his money. And I, that fellow, I believe was caught and arrested and so on. Mm. But so he was also, go ahead. go ahead. No, I'm sorry. He wasn't, he was not born blind. He, well, that was another thing I wanted to know what happened. He 
apparently they were fooling around, he and some uh, boys, um, teenagers, I guess. If, yeah, he was 14 at the time. And they were um, jumping up onto railroad cars and off of them. And anyway, he fell, hit his head, caused damage to his optic nerve, and also injured his leg, which is, I guess he had a limp most of his life as well. So. Yeah, now that you mention that, I do recall that, that he, he had a limp. Right. And I think it was before they put in that uh, nice ramp at the post office, so he probably had to negotiate those stairs all the time. Yeah, those stairs. Yeah, the ramp hasn't been in there that long, really. So, uh, but in another big thing, uh, he he was a big baseball fan, and actually even managed a baseball team for a while, and uh, you know, occasionally did the big leaguer in town, and uh, often he would uh, seek out Derby, and Derby was well known in Amsterdam and all around for his uh, love of baseball. Now, did he ever marry? No. As far as I know, he never got married. And when did he pass away? He died on New Year's Day, 1985. Had he by then stopped working the newsstand? Yes. As far as I know, he stopped somewhere between 1977 and 1978. He turned 65 in 1978, so that may be why he... Maybe he retired that year because when I came back in 78 to stay here permanently, he was no longer at the post office. And mm-hmm. then he lived another seven years. He passed mm-hmm. away. He closed the stand, uh, though, uh, part of it. He might have continued with the stand, even though he was 65 years old, but his health was declining at the time and also his business was declining. Of course, the whole downtown had changed by that time. Well, that's true. I mean, he was. Uh, dare I say, an, an attraction uh, back in the in the busy downtown days. I don't know. You'd go down to Christmas shop or something, and you'd you know go visit the post office, and you'll buy again a candy bar or cigarettes, whatever you're going to buy from Derby. Right. Those days went away. We're talking with uh, Dan Weaver about uh, stories of Amsterdam, New York history from his history column, Hindsight, which appears uh, every other week in the uh, Amsterdam Recorder. We'll be back with more with uh, Dan in just a moment. This is the Historian's Podcast. Our 2017 fund drive is now underway to support the podcast. Your donation at www.gofundme.com forward slash Historians 2017 helps cover technical costs and other production expenses. If you don't want to donate uh, through the uh, GoFundMe drive online, you can donate by mail. Make the check out to Bob Cudmore and send the check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. We're talking about stories from Amsterdam area history. We're joined by Dan Weaver, bookstore owner from that city and also author of a history column for the Amsterdam Recorder that appears every other Saturday. I want to ask you about a column you did again about recent history, and that is the Cabbage Patch uh, doll craze and its impact on Amsterdam. You know, I've, I frequently write about the, the carpet mills and the carpet mill culture and so on and so forth. But after the 
uh, carpet mills either had left or were in the process of, of leaving, Amsterdam picked up a, a fairly big and what looked like a, a stable employer, uh, the Coleco Company. And this uh, has to do with that story. Uh, what happened to uh, uh, Coleco coming to Amsterdam? Well, Coleco came to Amsterdam after Big Ol' Sanford had closed up shop. Big Ol' Sanford closed up in the 50s and left. And uh, Coleco had started in Hartford, Connecticut, where the Greenberg brothers were from. And they were looking for places to produce their products. They mostly produced uh, toys for children. Actually, they started out in leather craft products. And that's where the name comes from. Coleco stands for Connecticut Leather Company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you take the two the letters from each of those words, you come up with Coleco. So they were looking for... Um, a place to produce goods, and they found a uh, place in, in Mayfield in Gloversville where they first went, and which was great for their leather business because they were right near uh, the leather industry at the time. I believe that was in the 1950s. And uh, then they uh, expanded into other lines. One of the sons was uh, one that wanted to expand into other things and, and, and not just do leather crafting. So they expanded into where eventually they were doing uh, children's swimming pools. Uh, they even did uh, large above-ground swimming pools. They were doing plastic tricycles. And the first building, I believe, that they rented in Amsterdam or bought was the clock building, and then they ended up purchasing pretty much, not not all, but a large number of, of uh, Bigelow Sanford's former buildings in Amsterdam. And, uh, of course... Uh, they're best known for the ColecoVision, the Atom computer, and the Cabbage Patch doll, which was uh, crazy. I, I write in the story about my friend Eddie Bubniak and I were working on the dock at Coleco back, I can't remember the exact, it had to be 82 or early 83, and a uh, crate came. Now, most of the stuff came in cardboard boxes, but this was a wooden crate. So we had to get a crowbar, open it up, and uh, we opened it up and pull out this doll and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, and I said to Eddie, this, this is the ugliest doll I've ever seen. Who is going to buy this doll? <laughs> and of course, obviously I did not know marketing or what children like or, you know, so on, because it went on to become fabulously uh, popular. Oh yeah. And, uh, My daughter guy, has one. I think she still has sure. it, to tell you the truth. But, so, and uh, you worked at Coleco. Well, what was that like, or how did you like working for Coleco? You know, it, we complain like everyone does about their jobs, but really, it was a good place to work. Uh, we, you know, we get two starting out right off the bat. You get two weeks of vacation every year. You got ten holidays. Uh, you got health benefits that cost you virtually nothing. Um, you know, it wasn't a perfect place to work, but and actually, when when you compare it to the carpet industry. The people that worked for Coleco were much better off. Fine, you know, you got paid better. You had union representation. You had you had a lot of opportunities for moving up. If you got into engineering department or production control, things like that, you could actually go to college and they would reimburse you tuition and things like that. Mm. Well, I, I have heard. I mean, or I mean, my experience. I mean, this was when I was going back to Amsterdam frequently to see my parents and my other relatives. It, it certainly provided a a great replacement for those uh, carpet mill jobs. I mean, it was, uh, 
even if it wasn't really exactly as good a place to, to work for some people as the carpet mills, it certainly was a cut above a lot of the factories that were attracted to Amsterdam or the, right. you know, the, yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I would say the biggest drawback working there were the, uh, they, you'd often get laid off for a while, but you know, if you look at the carpet mill, you find the same thing happening there many times. Mm-hmm. And it all depended yeah. on your job, where you worked, what your job was, whether you got laid off. You'd get laid off for a while and then get hired back and so on. But uh, And then when they were really going big in the 80s with the Cabbage Patch and so on, they had as many employees as Big Old Sanford and uh, Mohawk Carpets had together. Mm-hmm. had Well, between Gloversville, Mayfield, and Amsterdam, they had about 5,000 employees when they peaked. Really? Yes. Now, one thing, and I hope you. Well, let me let me ask you. The Cabbage Patch doll was probably their best known product. That wasn't actually made locally, or or was it? Where where were no. they made? It was made in China, and uh, during the craze, instead of having them come by ship, which is the way most products came to Coleco, they came in these big containers on on ships. They. Uh, leased or rented or hired 747s, Boeing 747s, to go over and bring these dolls over, and then they were pa- they were uh, checked, quality control, packaged, and all that here in Amsterdam, and then shipped out to the stores from from here. And now, but now there were some things though that they did right there. I don't know all of what they did, but some of the electronic toys I remember going up on the floors, and there were women, especially a lot of women working. Uh, on these lines, soldering things together and, and so on. So some mm-hmm. production was done there. Now, the the, I've also heard this story, and maybe I heard it from you, and it's, it was in your piece, that uh, Coleco was so concerned about uh, the product because, you know, it was very valuable and so forth, that they put nets or something around the building so that people couldn't toss them out the window and then go back later and pick them up? Yeah, I don't know. About the nets, I never, I, I don't know about that, um, but I do know that people were caught tossing them out the window to like, Confederates on the outside, who would then, you know, they would split the cost when uh, the the price when they st- sold the stolen goods. So, yeah, they might have done something like that to to stop that because that was a problem. And in terms of what happened to Coleco, I've always heard tell that the company. Uh, got into the tried to get into the computer business with their Atom computer, which I believe you can find an example at the New York State Museum, and that uh, bankrupted the company. Yeah, that was one of the reasons. And, and the, another, the Atom computer was a great idea at the time. I mean, at the time it was considered, you know, really forward thinking. Having this uh, computer, everything that you needed was all there, and you didn't have to buy separate. A printer from somebody else and a monitor from someone else. It all was there in one package, but the quality wasn't there. I remember when I worked there, they had to send an engineer down to Haiti because the power supply was being made in Haiti. And one of the problems was the power supply kept overheating. But there were other issues uh, with, with it as well. And there were delays in getting out the Atom, just as there were delays getting out the ColecoVision. One of the one of the delays with the ColecoVision, which was still a fairly successful product, uh, was uh, there was a dock strike, and that caused Coleco to lose a lot of money. But yeah, they what, one thing they did is they sold off their blow mold uh, 
lines that made uh, the tricycles for kids. They sold off their pool line, and they put all their money in one basket. And as you know, uh, the advice always is: don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, they did, and they blew it because they were making a profit on the pools. They were making a profit on the tricycles, um, but it wasn't a huge profit. And so they decided to go big with this computer, and, and they and, and they, you know they blew it. And they also thought that the Cabbage Patch doll was going to carry them longer than it did, but it was a fad, like so many things. And uh, eventually, you know, the craze died down. Although they're, they're still being made today, they're still being made mm-hmm. today, but not not as many uh, as there were back in those days. When did Coleco leave Amsterdam? I believe it was 1987 was this 87 or 88 mm-hmm. when they went bankrupt. Yeah, they went bankrupt in 88. I believe they were pulling out of here in 87, which is very interesting because that's just about the exact same time that Mahasco closed it up in Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And its, its final days were about the same time that Coleco's were. And didn't, or, or let me ask you this, did Hasbro come in for a while? I don't know if they were doing they the same did. things that Coleco bought stuff from Coleco, but it seems to me they were there for a while. They they were. They they came in and took over building, what was building 64 when Sanford had it, and building uh, 4, it was called building 4 when Coleco had it. And uh, they put out some of the, they, they bought some of the lines and put out some of the products that Coleco had been putting out. But that was short-lived, or they're gone, yes. too. By, yeah. Right, yeah. They were only here a few years. I, I remember, I don't, remember I don't know if you ever met uh, Susan Doria, the woman who did her doctoral dissertation on uh, the ethnic issues and the loss of industry in Amsterdam. Uh, right. As an anthropologist, you know, she did her doctoral dissertation. She worked for Hasbro when she came to Amsterdam. I think she was there yeah. in the... Well, I thought it was in the early 90s, but be that as it, it may. Been. They might have and, still been here then. Yeah, but as I recall, a point she made was that in her interviewing people, the people were more sympathetic to the carpet mills moving out somehow than they were to uh, Coleco moving out. That, yeah, uh, I, well, and anyway. I've never understood that, that myself. There's, there just seems to be more nostalgia and more a good... Uh, memories about the carpet mill than there than than there are Coleco, but I'm not sure why that is because if you look at it in a very uh, I guess you know the way a historian would look at it, and you look at what people were paid in the carpet mills, what they were paid at Coleco, and so on and so forth. If you line it all up, you were better off working at Coleco. But hmm. No. Well, but of course the mills, the carpet mills were there for so long, you know, really for generations. I think there was a certain nostalgia attached to that. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, but, uh, and I will say that Coleco was here longer than people think. They were here in Amsterdam at least 30 years. They were up in Fulton County longer, and they were in business. They started in 1932, right at the height of the Depression, which is one of the strange things about them. They started at the height of the Depression. And when they went bottoms up, it was during the Reagan years when things were supposed to be so great, you know. So, hmm. We're talking with Dan Weaver uh, about stories from Amsterdam. We have just about uh, a few minutes left or about five minutes left. 
let me ask you about a, a more recent uh, column that you've done about a woman who just or who passed away at age 92 was the only thing I wrote down. <laughs> what would, but you said she was well known years ago. Okay, actually, she was 97 when she died. She died in 1992. Her name was Mildred Bartlett. She grew up in Amsterdam, graduated from Amsterdam High School, and uh, was involved in drama and decided that she wanted to be an actress. So uh, and she's a descendant of Thomas Bunn and Chandler Bartlett and all kinds of other people, but I won't get into that. Uh, so she left for New York City. And she got a job right away. Uh, pr pretty soon, she got a job. She she was in vaudeville. She was in Zigfield, one of Zigfield shows in the Coconut Grove. Uh, then she was in, in uh, plays, and then she got into silent movies. Uh, one of the plays she was in was in was being played in Chicago, and she was quite attractive lady. She got over seventy proposals of marriage while this uh, play was. Uh, being done in Chicago. Uh, so anyway, her 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 film name, her acting name was Ray Dean. She went by the name Ray Dean. And by 1921, she was really doing quite well. Newspapers around the country had very positive things to say about her. And she also got the, a leading lady role in a movie called Message from Mars, uh, opposite a male actor who was quite well-known in the silence, but he didn't make it in the talkies, as many mm -hmm. of them didn't. But there was a Broadway producer named Max Gordon who brought some of his shows to Amsterdam. Sometimes they'd try them out in a place like Amsterdam before they'd try them out in New York. And as he was leaving Amsterdam, he ran into this Mildred Bartlett, who was also leaving Amsterdam after visiting her parents, going back to New York City. And he fell in love with this woman, pursued her for several years, and in 1921, she agreed to marry him. But just when her career was really taking off, that's when she got married, and he asked her to give up her career, which she did, which in some ways was unfortunate. You know, they had no children, but he became a very, very famous uh, Broadway producer, produced Dodsworth. He produced uh, A Born Yesterday with Judy Holliday and... Uh, well, Broderick Crawford was, was the actor in the movie, but Paul Douglas played it in, on Broadway. And he and became she, quite wealthy. And so, when she died, uh, which was in 1992, she, uh, was, where was she living? She was living in New York City, as far as I know. Now, she lived, they, the Gordons lived in the Hotel Delmonico, which is where Ed Sullivan lived. And really? Ed Sullivan, yes, who, as you've written already, his father was from Amsterdam and his mother was from Amsterdam. And that's another column I'm working on. It's actually done is about Ed Sullivan's newspaper columns in which he would often right. mention people from Amsterdam. Very and good. Well, Dan, we're just about yes. out of time. Dan okay. Weaver's been with us on uh, the Historian's podcast. Uh, First off, about these fascinating stories you're telling, they appear in the Amsterdam Recorder. Are you collecting them into a book, or, or do you have anything else I guess I'm asking you want to plug at this time? Well, down the road, I, I may put them into a book. And, and the, the, good, the problem with a newspaper column, as you know, is you're, you're limited to X number of words, and they often don't use photographs today. So I often have more information that I would like to include that, that I can't. So I would like to put when I get enough to put them together in a book with photographs, be able to make corrections if I made any errors and be able to include the information that I had to leave out 
for the newspaper column. Okay. And you can find Dan Weaver at his store, The Book Hound, 16 Main Street uh, in Amsterdam. Again, Dan, a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me on, Bob. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>